And now please welcome our moderator, Dr. Robert Martindale. Well, thank you, Lisa. Thank you for everyone for joining us. I know we've had uh, some issues with technical problems in the past, uh, but we're here today and it's working all well and everyone's checked in and we're ready to go. So thank you very much. Uh, and I'll introduce our, our group today. Uh, we've got quite a, quite a panel. Myself, I'm from the Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland, Oregon. Metha Berger comes to us from Switzerland, where she works in intensive care in the burn units in Lausanne, certainly uh, well-recognized in nutrition circles. And we have Maurizio Mascaratoli from Italy, a full professor of internal medicine, director of the medicine and clinical unit there in the artificial home uh, nutrition unit uh, in Sapienza University in Rome. So he's from Rome. Martin Rosenthal from Gainesville, Florida, uh, down in the south part of the United States, for those of you in Europe. And Lorenzo Pradelli bring, comes to us uh, from Torino, Italy. He's an expert in health economics. So I think today we'll have an exciting program and hopefully get a lot of interaction with everyone uh, about the program and what's going on. Uh, I do have to say that our disclosures today, the support for this program uh, would have been for Aspen and now is from Fresenius Calvi, very nice uh, association with Fresenius has brought us uh, these, these uh, meetings throughout the year, and this is another one. This program is not accredited for continuing education, and the speakers are being compensated for their time, so just as our disclosures for this. But let's start off our discussion with uh, the idea of omega-3s. As you all know, omega-3s have been a highlight of the sort of nutrition world for a long time. It started in the 70s with the idea that we showed that people that took a lot of fish oil reported they had less atherosclerosis. And the idea that these Eskimos in the north showed us that they could eat lots of fat but not get uh, atherosclerotic disease. And that started a whole cascade of events. And now we've got good clinical data. You know, we transitioned just from heart disease and those we've gone on to now the very idea that the clinical data is superb. We've got in-hospital data. We've got, you know, not only are we using fish oils and, or using, excuse me, not only using lipids for basically calories and essential fatty acids, now we're looking about changing and altering clinical outcomes. And that'll be the exciting part of today. So I'd like to uh, turn the over now to Matt Berger to give us uh, some ideas of fatty acid metabolism. So Matt, go ahead. Good morning and good afternoon, everybody. Here we are already the evening. Well, what Bob Martindale told you here is very important. This has to go get with the history of parental nutrition. Long, we only had some lipids. Now there is a lot of science into it. And human metabolism is totally depending on uh, lipids. It's building blocks for the membranes, but it's also uh, precursors for lots of things. There are many types of lipids out there, but we are only going to focus on two series of fatty acids, omitting the short chain fatty acid MCT for the sake of being clear. If you look at this slide, you will observe that we have three lines up here and we will focus on these two. Historically, we had only omega-6 fatty acids available in parental nutrition. It was the old life-saving intralipid, which was providing us with essential fatty acids. 
It's actually based on linoleic acid, which is an essential fatty acid, as is alpha-linolenic acid, the essential of the omega-3 fatty acid line. And we need to ingest these two lines of fatty acids. And in our normal food, we have normally a balance of both. And actually, the big difference between those two is what the end products will be. And in the body, there will be a series of processes when we ingest these two essential fatty acids with desaturation and elongation, which will progressively go down from 16 carbon molecules down to molecules which have 22 actually carbons. And when these then are metabolized in the body and further processed, please next, we observe actually that the ones which derive from the omega-3s or from the omega-6s will have very different actually actions. When you are basing your diet on omega-3 fatty acids, you will have echosanoids of the three serides, the three series of prostaglandins, of thromboxanes and of leukotrienes. What is distinguishing them from their partners on the omega-6 side is that they have pro-inflammatory with the omega-6s and weak anti-inflammatory effects from the omega-3s. And moreover, if you go down the road, you will have more and more anti-inflammatory effects on the omega-3 sides and pro-inflammatory effects with the omega-6s. So especially, and this I will talk a little bit later on with, are the pro-resolving mediators. We have now learned a lot about these last years. So, next. How can we explain all this? Actually, we know from studies in animals and from actually also human studies uh, that you just modulate the metabolism by delivering one or the other. As I said before, the normal diets contain a mix of omega-6 and omega-3. And we always talk about this ratio of the two. And the higher the omega-3, the less inflammation we have in the diseases. When the proportion of the omega-3 increases in our diets, what we achieve is a metabolism that progressively shifts over to a non-inflammatory pathway. And this is mass action, it's chemistry, it's well demonstrated. And we can improve the lipid metabolism in the liver very directly by giving these uh, omega-3s. Actually, when you start a treatment of parental nutrition, you should always measure first line triglyceride to know where your patient is starting. And you will observe them as soon as you use solutions to contain omega-3s, triglycerides will go down if you're not overfeeding. Next. And on the top of that, we have in the last years, and when I say the last years, it's the four or five last years, quite a series of papers have come out which have very nicely shown why this matters. And we have 
seen the identification of specialized pro-resolution mediators derived from alpha-linolenic acid. And these actually derive from the EPA and DHA. The two of them will result in key mediators, not exactly the same, actually, because some of them are coming from the EPA and others are coming from the DHA. And actually, it's the combination of the both which results in the best anti-inflammatory effect. Well, inflammation, don't get me wrong, is required. But what we want to address by giving a balanced lipid solution, including omega-3s, is that the body is able to then close inflammation. What our patients suffer from is a prolonged inflammation. And if they don't have omega-3s in the body, they are not able to cut this process. And you exacerb this process by delivering only omega-6s. So next. <coughs> of inflammation to me is one of the most exciting things we have in the newest ideas of omega-3s. Before, we always talked about omega-3 being anti-inflammatory and preventing the inflammatory response. But now I believe this, this Charlie Sirhan and his group in, in Boston has brought us now a wealth of information and multiple labs now have shown that we can actually enhance resolution in addition to preventing the inflammation. And so, and as you said, already in many, we've got kidney and liver and brain even and systemic inflammation, the resolution of this seems to be better by several mechanisms. And I think that to me is very exciting most recently. What are your, some of the effects of the other fish oils that you mentioned in the next slide? Well, I'm using, I've been using these molecules for over 20 years now, and I'm just knowing that I wouldn't give any parental nutrition more anymore without including omega-3s. I'm sometimes, and this is not yet used in the United States, in the most inflammatory patients, using pure omega-3s. So this is something which you will probably go forwards to in the United States as well, because all these effects you see on this screen, I mean, the suppression of interleukins, the attenuation of the TNF-alpha response, the immunomodulation, all this has been proven and proven and proven again. So there is absolutely no doubt, and I don't want to bother our audience with too much technique, but clearly you have references this long like that of very good science. And we can only improve our patients. So when you ask me, which patient would benefit of this? Well, actually, as I told you, I cannot imagine any parental nutrition anymore without including omega-3s. I have been belonging to those who have been even testing off-label high doses with total safety. But uh, the majority of data are coming from uh, surgical patients. Now I'm talking about the randomized use of on-label uh, doses. Surgical patients have clear advantages because they have a inflammation which is very stereotyped and you just cut it off and reduce it and reduce infectious complications. 
then the very inflammatory patients, the acute pancreatitis patients, are top candidates for this. If you have CRPs over 200, uh, don't try and give a blend. Go, we go on pure omega-3s. And burns, the same, very inflammatory patients. So these are the three big categories. But as I said, for me, no way I will go back to pure IL-6s or no lipids. I need the lipids blends to attenuate the response to the hit. Now, that's great, Meta. And I, I think we've seen this uh, in our place, too. We switched over to the mixed formula quite some time ago when it became available in the U.S. in 2016. We've also have data coming out of uh, Mayo Clinic, I know now, on the long-term patients and also out of Poland uh, with Professor Klutz's work showing these patients that get TPN long-term with an omega-3 based uh, with some omega-3 available and show much better resolution. So I think we can uh, now press on and we can talk about the clinical side in the hospital setting. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. And we say, uh, you know, what do you think, uh, Martin? What do you think about the importance of these lipids in the hospital setting? Oh, man, I, I really think that uh, they are super important. At the end of the day, both surgical and medical patients can uh, benefit from mixed lipid emulsions. It's a great source of uh, non-caloric, I mean, sorry, non-carbohydrate non um, calories. It's also caloric dense. Uh, it certainly staves off essential fatty acid deficiencies. So we use our mixed lipid emulsions here at University of Florida. We actually brought in probably right after you guys did uh, shortly in 2017. So we've been having a lot of good success with our super uh, inflamed patients. And, uh, you know, the next uh, question that we were going to try and address was that uh, is the rec what is the recommended dose for these uh, lipid emulsions? And so the uh, on-label use for our lipid emulsions and what is, in, uh, is consistent with our uh, data is that most patients should get somewhere between 1 and 1 1.5 grams per kilogram per day. Uh, and that usually gives you somewhere between... 0.1 and 0.2 uh, grams of fish oil, which is the omega-3 anti-inflammatory component of those fish oils. Now, the uh, label for SMOF actually carries uh, up to 2.5, which uh, has been safe, but at that point, you're starting to uh, potentially uh, give too much lipids. And I don't know if uh, Dr. Berger has something to say about that, but you know, we usually stick to somewhere between 1 and 1 1.5 here. Agree the same, and I, I think Meta mentioned hers that she's done some studies where they're safe, but at higher doses. But clinically, I think we need to stay at the one to one point five gram per kilo per day. Certainly, that's a level at which we know is very safe and very beneficial. Do you think we get enough fish oil giving that much? Do you think you deliver enough? I know the Aspen uh, expert guidelines on and uh, you know intravenous lipid emulsions to recommend a point one to point two gram per kilo per day. And when you measure 10% of the lipid in, in a mixed lipid, is 10% of that is fish oil. That's about where we'd be. So we're okay with that dose, you think? Yeah, I think I think we are. I think it was uh, Heller's uh, group that showed that uh, the one uh, 1.2 to 1.5 dosing gets you that one, uh, sorry, 0 0.1 to 0 0.2, which uh, has uh, shown clinical benefit. So I do think that's an appropriate dose. Okay, great. So, 
You know, uh, can the composition of our intravenous uh, lipid emulsions influence clinical outcomes? And Dr. Berger has already alluded to this, as well as Dr. Martindale. You know, I, for one, say absolutely yes. Um, the omega-3 fatty acids have shown uh, to decrease inflammation, anything from CRP, IL-6. All the biomarkers are favorably reduced using omega-3 fatty acids as compared to a soy-based product. Um, it's certainly cost-effective in improving clinical outcomes, reduces hepatotoxicity, reduces inflammation, and we also can start building our specialized pro-resolving mediators, which have also shown to be kind of a bioactive uh, lipid byproduct of the omega-3 fatty acids. And so in our surgical patients, uh, you know, once we're uh, able to start uh, giving them calories. Uh, you know, we try and do enteral nutrition upfront, but if we can't, our first go-to is parental nutrition subsidized with these lipid emulsions uh, to help decrease the uh, inflammation. I think that's uh, gravitating towards standard of care for uh, the U.S. right now. I don't think, uh, I don't think uh, people should st uh, strictly adhere to an omega-6 fatty acid diet that's been shown to be a pro-inflammatory diet. What do you think, Dr. Martindale? No, I, I agree 100%. I, you know, for years since 1976 until 2016, all we had was the soy-based lipids. It was a great because we saved us, giving out pure carbohydrate calories. So, but now that we've got a more physiologic mixed solution, I think it's a much better plan. I mean, we've got soy to give us the essential fatty acids in there. We've got olive oil, which is a neutral fat, which is well uh, utilized by the, by the patient. We had MCT, which I think offers us lots of lots of benefits in the ICU setting. Certainly, well utilized by the host. Uh, used for oxidation, does not contribute to to uh, hypertriglyceridemia, and so I, again, very beneficial there. It's also somewhat ketogenic for those that into that nowadays. And also, then we have the fish oil with all of its things we've talked about. So I think this idea that we're influencing clinical outcome is clearly there. And that kind of leads us to the next deal. Well, what's the data show? So let's let's go over to uh, uh, Maurizio here, and he can give us some of the data because he's certainly written a lot of the big articles that have shown us where the data is coming from. Maurizio, go ahead. Thank you, Rob, for uh, asking me to um, talk about this aspect. It, it would appear that the strong rationale for the use of omega-3 fatty acids has a very strong clinical counterpart uh so and and this is true for for uh surgical and, and icu patients um as you know one of the best way to uh, extract the best available evidence for clinical studies is to uh, perform systemic systematic review and meta-analysis so we decided to perform a systematic review and meta-analysis and we searched uh, uh, the main uh, databases medline base and cochrane central register of control trials and we looked for uh, adult hospitalized patient studies in the ICU or non-ICU setting with the parental nutrition covering at least of 70% of their total energy requirements and uh, treated with either a standard uh, non-omega-3 enriched uh, uh, intralipid, uh, inter intravenous emulsions or omega-3 enriched um, um, emulsions for, for uh, intravenous use. And uh, so we assembled uh, the available data in a systematic review and meta-analysis 
which uh, encompass uh, some 49 studies with uh, uh, over 3,500 patients uh, uh, included and analyzed. So briefly, the results of this new meta-analysis uh, was that uh, compared with standard liver emulsions, omega-3 fatty acids and rich parental nutrition resulted in a significant 40% reduction of infection rates. And you see here, the, the difference was, uh, was quite highly significant. Uh, there was also a non-significant reduction in mortality rate, uh, and, but uh, there was a reduction in ICU stay, uh, which was uh, a significant, uh, statistically significant, and also a reduction in length of hospital stay. Uh, so this uh, meta-analysis uh, is uh, uh, more comp comprehensive uh, than the previous one we have performed some years ago, uh, but basically uh, is, uh, is confirming the previously obtained results that uh, uh, the use of these uh, uh, omega-3 fatty acids uh, and rich liver emulsions have, uh, uh, have clinical benefits in these uh, classes of patients. Now the question could be whether the uh, currently available guidelines support the use of omega-3 uh, fatty acid and rich intravenous uh, lipid emulsions in uh, these populations. And uh, basically the answer is uh, yes. Uh, the currently available guidelines support uh, the use of uh, these lipid emulsions. Uh, the major guidelines by a Aspen and Aspen support the use of alternatives to, so, to pure soybean oil intralipid emulsions, and also uh, the European uh, Society of Parental Nutrition, the ESPEN guidelines for uh, uh, nutrition in uh, surgical patients uh, suggest that uh, uh, omega-3 fatty acids and rich lipid emulsions should be considered uh, for those patients uh, who after surgery are in need of parental nutrition, and uh, the same is uh, uh, is stated by the uh, Aspen Expert Group recommendation, uh, particularly in uh, surgical ICU patients, uh, uh, these liver emulsions are, uh, are, um, should be considered because of their anti-inflammatory actions. And uh, on the uh, USA side, of course, uh, guidelines for nutrition support therapy from the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the American Society for uh, Parental Entering Nutrition for Adult Critical Ill Patients also extend to a target patient population, including uh, surgical patients. So I would say there is wide uh, consensus that these liver emulsions may be beneficial in these patients. Yeah, I, I would agree, uh, Mauricio. And you know, having been involved in both the Aspen and the SACM guidelines, we, uh, you know, remember we wrote those guidelines published in 2016, really took our last references in the U.S. in 2013. And so we talk about them in the discussion, although they weren't available in the U.S. at that time. Although in, if you read the discussion under that section, it clearly states that when available, they will become available in the U.S. And when they do, we'll take them. I think uh, that's really the key yeah. is that now pretty much globally, it looks like people are accepting these and doing well with them. So let's go yeah. on to the next one about safety there. What are your thoughts about safety? 
I'll say with you. Well, if you care to know about my personal experience, I never experienced uh, undesired side effects with this kind of liver emulsions. As you say, these are much more physiological than the previous ones and the first ones we had we had available containing only soy bean oil. So I I can say that uh, even in uh, in patients uh, uh, with uh, uh, with uh, um, in clinical, in particular, clinical condition. For example, in hematologic patients, uh, I uh, routinely you employ this uh, uh, these lipid emulsions, and uh, and I have never experienced uh, negative side effects. One concern was uh, uh, that uh, that uh, these uh, lipid emulsions could be involved in uh, uh, derangements in uh, um, uh, in uh, coagulopathy. Uh, cause coagulopathy or, or bleeding abnormalities, but uh, the uh, the uh, currently available uh, um, clinical data uh, and uh, uh, and systematic reviews do not uh, consistently show that this is uh, an issue uh, with uh, these liver emulsions. Uh, another important point is uh, the level of uh, serum triglyceride, which should be uh, not to be exceeded. Uh, the the Aspen guidelines suggest that uh, a level of 500 milligrams per dl should not be ex exceeded. I would suggest to remain on the safe side, uh, around 400 milligrams per dl. And uh, one, my personal suggestion is that you check uh, any any time you 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 want to use a, an an intravenous lipid emulsion, you should check. Uh, uh, fasting uh, blood triglycerides before uh, using this uh, uh, lipid emulsions. But uh, but uh, uh, one other aspect is that uh, omega three um, uh, fatty acids and rich lipid emulsions may improve uh, triglyceride levels uh, because they may promote uh, the clearance of triglycerides from blood. So no uh, problems in this. Yeah, thank you, Maurizio. I, I think as a surgeon, you know, we worry about people being on fish oils, coming to surgery, doing big operations. And and we've not had trouble personally, but I'm doing thousands of cases in that setting. But we also have good data now, published data, which you can see the references here, which will be given out afterwards. Certainly in retrospective cases, fish oil, both enteral and parenteral, have not caused significant bleeding, even post-procedural which is a nice paper just came out recently by the group from uh, Boston. So I think we can say that they're very safe and should not be a, a major problem. So I, I think we can transition now onto the cost effectiveness, because as you know, today's world, everything's about the dollar or the euro or whatever currency we're using nowadays. So let's uh, turn this over to uh, Dr. Bradelli, and he can give us some insights into this. Lorenzo, go ahead. Hi, thank you, Robert. Well, yes, uh, why is it increasingly important? I think the, the answer is uh, quite obvious. Uh, healthcare resources are limited. There's a lot of competing strategies out there. And the decision maker needs to have a rational basis on which to ground uh, the decisions to allocate. And we provide the tool for uh, at least to inform one of these criteria, which is uh, uh, efficiency in the allocation, which is also an ethical principle. And this is the reason why we have also studied uh, how efficient it is to allocate uh, healthcare resources uh, to the use of uh, fish oil containing lipid emulsions, which are uh, more expensive in most countries uh, than uh, standard lipid emulsions, which do not contain omega-3s. 
And I'm going to show you a couple of studies uh, that have been performed. Uh, the first one uh, that we did uh, started from the meta-analysis, our older meta-analysis, which Maurizio was uh, talking about uh, just a couple of minutes ago, which was a smaller version of the update that we published in 2019. I was already quite powered with a total of 23 studies and uh, over 1,500 patients. So I do not want to be too technical, but we developed a, what is called a patient level discrete event simulation model, which is able to reproduce uh, clinical outcomes uh, that uh, have been observed in real life studies uh, in the countries uh, that we have analyzed. And we applied uh, the uh, relative effectiveness estimates stemming from our meta-analysis uh, for our simulation, attaching costs, uh, which were taken uh, country specific from published sources. And uh, what we obtained uh, was quite uh, encouraging. Uh, we have started uh, analyzing the base case, which was for Italy. And uh, we have observed uh, what we in uh, health economics jargon call a dominance situation, which means that we were able to obtain better clinical results with omega-3 without increasing uh, uh, healthcare expenditure, actually by reducing them thanks to uh, enhanced recovery of the patients which were treated with omega-3s. So we had a shorter uh, length of stay, less infections, and this led to an overall saving both in Italy and uh, in the other countries which we analyzed, ranging from uh, four to five thousand uh, uh, dollars, four to five thousand euros more or less uh, for ICU patients, and around one thousand euros in uh, in non-ICU patients. So uh, we have, uh, as you have heard, uh, we have had access uh, to new evidence. Evidence has been accumulating in the last five years. So we reperformed uh, the meta-analysis, uh, which Maurizio just uh, showed to you, and you can see the main results in the in the bottom table in the slide, where we have confirmed uh, a significant association uh, with less infections and shorter hospital lengths of stays. And again, we applied uh, these uh, relative efficacy results uh, to the standard outcomes that, that uh, were observed uh, in. Uh, five U, U, EU countries uh, from real-world practice in which uh, standard uh, uh, lipid amounts were, were used. And again, we were able to show that uh, it is expected that we will have uh, less infections, uh, shorter lengths of stay concurrently with a, a saving in uh, healthcare. So to check if this uh, situation was actually uh, generalizable to different healthcare systems than the European ones. Uh, we have also performed a study uh, in the Chinese setting where a healthcare organization is uh, is different. I'm sorry, <laughs> trouble. Uh, and uh, we, uh, we use actually the cost in China for the patient of the small flipid, the, the mixed emulsions uh, that uh, Robert was talking about earlier. And again, uh, we ended up in the same dominance situation. So also for the Chinese setting, we were able to show that patients uh, would stay less in hospital, have a lower risk of getting infected during their hospital stay. And at the end uh, of the day, the, the cost would be less for them. So we have a lot of concurrent data all pointing in the same direction. It is a wise choice uh, to include uh, omega-3s in your lipid emulsions.
And uh, I will answer the question without you posing it to me as it is on the on the next slide. Yes, we have considered also trying to analyze uh, how it would be in uh, the U.S. Actually, we have applied uh, the same techniques uh, to the U.S. healthcare system. And uh, we are about to publish the data. At least we hope so. The, the paper is currently under review. Very good. So basically, we have a global uh, benefit there. It sounds like the best of both worlds, actually. If you think through that, you know, you're saving money and giving a, a more physiologic lipid. So I think in summary, before we do our question and answers, we can talk about we, we have this available pretty much globally now and uh, with the U.S. and Europe and Asia and everybody has it available. And I think the use is going up and we're seeing that's why it's, we're seeing the data come out so dramatically now, uh, the benefits. I think we have plausible mechanistic data, which makes sense about how these things work, why a mixed lipid solution or a fish oil based solution does better. Uh, we talk about anti-inflammatory, certainly the concept of pro-resolving, pro-resolution of inflammation is big. We know we've seen data now promoting immune function. We, we've had data for 25 years now on lipids attenuating metabolic response to stress. And then we've got good data now on lipids and LFTs, and we show increased recovery in the ICU setting, in the septic setting, and decreased infections in surgical patients, certainly all of our benefits. So we've got outcome data, mechanistic data that makes sense to us. And now we've shown safety data. The data now is well published, that is safe, even in surgery procedures, medical procedures, long-term settings, we've got significant. And now as Lorenzo has nicely shown us, we've cost-effective and certainly uh, is gonna be long-term very beneficial for us cost-effectively. Thank you, and I think we can turn this over now to Tracy to moderate some question and answer session for the panel. So we'll all, all be available for the panel questions. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you got something out of this today, and, and now we'll do our questions. So Tracy, go ahead. Thank you all, it was so much information. We do have some questions coming in from the audience. Uh, the first question is around um, what is the evidence for omega-3 fatty acid containing lipids in patients with septic shock and ARDS, such as those with COVID-19? I think a very uh, time relevant question right now. I'm happy to take that if you'd like. Uh, we, uh, we just wrote the guidelines for the SCCM and Aspen for this and a paper came out yesterday actually reviewing the data of uh, uh, COVID-19 nutrition. That was in the Aspen yesterday, JPEN yesterday came out as an article reviewing this. And I'm sure uh, Maurizio and Lorenzo, uh, Maurizio will have some data from Italy, which also had a big problem like we've got in the United States. We feel strongly that uh, this lipid should be used in this, if nothing else, to prevent in inflammation. This is a highly inflamed population. And in fact, we've got good data now showing you we can lower the inflammatory response and enhance resolution. A paper came out yesterday, day before yesterday on resolution of inflammation uh, in this setting. So I think for COVID-19 patients, uh, which are still in the United States, we're losing about 1,000 patients a, a day now. Uh, it's still going to be beneficial. We're going to we now see a spike coming again. It's already started. So, Meta or, Mar or Maurizio, anybody or you know, Martin, do you have any thoughts on this? Go ahead. Well, having seen what I've seen over 20 years, I would think it was silly to go back to 
non-lipid first and only IL-6s. Clearly, we need the anti-inflammatory effects in these patients. So avoiding overfeeding and giving the correct lipid emulsions is basics. So I really agree with you, totally. We, we, we totally agree. Uh, I, I don't have personal data on this subject, although we had many uh, cases of uh, COVID-19. But uh, uh, if uh, it's true that uh, inflammation is uh, leading the clinical uh, picture of, uh, of these patients, uh, there is uh, no uh, reason why we should uh, use uh, living emotions other than these, in which we don't have free fatty acids. And, and on the one side, to try to uh, reduce inflammation, and on the other side, to try to promote the a more rapid resolution of it. But I, I do not have personal data, but I strongly support the use uh, of the equivalent emulsions in these patients. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think, I think we have to re extrapolate the data, you know, extrapolate data from other inflammatory processes to this highly inflamed population. It certainly makes sense. Uh, Mette, go ahead. There is one thing people are not often thinking about, is that the sedation of the sickest COVID patient requires high doses of propofol. And this means uh, most of the time LCT, omega-6s. So it's even, there is an option to have MCT uh, propofol. And if you have it, you should use it. But for sure, you should not increase the omega-6 load. And when we're talking about maximal doses of lipids, don't forget to integrate the dose of propofol you're delivering. That's yeah, very important. Very good point. Thank you. Martin, anything to add to that? We'll go to the next question. No, I think that's great. Uh, great answers all around. Okay, great. Right. Go ahead, Tracy. <laughs> sure. So the audience is asking to share your own experience using um, fish oil containing ILEs especially in ICU surgical patients, um, key things around timing, frequency, dose, and your duration that you're using in your ICU and surgical patients. Martin, you want well, to go ahead or Meta? Yeah. Go ahead, Meta. Well, okay. Uh, no, so for our surgical patients, uh, we've got uh, a lot of patients now uh, using these uh, mixed lipid emulsions, you know, our our fondies and our dietitians are preferentially using the mixed lipid emulsions, basically for everything that we've talked about. And uh, my patient population is, you know, trauma, uh, surgical sepsis, and we've got a pretty robust um, elective practice in fistula management. And one of the cool things with our fistula management is that's more of a little bit of an elective uh, population and we have a lot of good data with um, immunomodulatory enteral feeds in the elective uh, surgical setting to enhance wound healing and decrease uh, issues uh, in the post-operative period. And now that we have omega-3 fatty acids as a parenteral uh, formula, if we could you know, start adding maybe even some arginine, we can start developing robust ERAS protocols with parenteral nutrition going forward. And I think, uh, you know, in the future for fistula management, developing these types of protocols is going to be paramount for, uh, for better delivery of uh, nutrients and better care for our patients. 
Go ahead, Meta. Then to complete this, for many years now, we have no more parental nutrition without lipid emulsions, including omega-3s. And we even go in some surgical patients, the very inflammatory one, totally over to pure omega. So we really use it as a drug, although we respect the doses. But for us, it's a component of the therapy. We need the two right hands of the surgeon, and then we need to do the good things afterwards to help yeah, the patient I, resolve the information. Yeah, I, I agree, uh, both about the good surgeon and the right formula. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think that, that I do big GI surgery like Martin does. I don't do trauma much anymore, but uh, certainly we use these and our transplant people use them routinely. So pretty much this is our only formula to get a pure soy-based formula. Now you have to have special situation. So our standard formula for parental lipid is, is this. Go ahead, Meta. And again, you're talking about liver transplant probably. I mean, we know that the omega-3s improve the liver function. So right. even in the most important surgery, these are essential. I mean, I've been just recently treating patients in liver encephalopathy and treating them with pure omega-3s to get the liver right down. And that yeah. works perfectly every time. Yeah, I think that's good. In the U.S., though, for those in the U.S. members, the omega-3, pure omega-3 solutions are only approved by the FDA for pediatrics. So we have to be mm -hmm. cautious there. We can use the mixed lipid that's approved for adults, yes. but for us in the U.S., unfortunately, we can't use the pure omega-3 except in pediatrics. Any, what's in, any other questions? Yeah, we actually have a question um, around ILEs and platelets. Um, if the if they are lowered or the INR is high when beginning an ILE, would you use um, omega three containing ILEs in your patients? And I know we covered off a little bit about that, but it just a little bit more information was requested. Yep, Mauricio, you want to take that one? Uh, Mete, go ahead, and then I will, I will tell you. My word was simple, without hesitation. Now for you, Mauricio. Same, as you said, it's Yeah, I feel the same. I, in fact, I got an operation this afternoon, a plate with a plate to, patient with plate to 34,000. She's getting intravenous lipids right now containing fish oil. Well, it's not, it's not only that, but most surgeons this day and age are pretty comfortable doing some really big operations on an aspirin. We, we're, we're giving platelet inhibitors to our patients and still doing hernia operations, gallbladders, appendectomies, you know, some of the bigger ones, a liver transplant, probably probably should hold the aspirin. Yeah, yeah I think this fits very well with the, with the paper published in 2009 by Watson. You know, that paper is a very nice paper where they looked at patients on antiplatelet drugs like clopidogrel, aspirin, and showed no abnormalities in their, in their bleeding in those populations. So I think we've got good data in this area with plenty of patients showing that exposure. Okay, Tracy, go ahead. Yeah, so there was a question to clarify um, safety of use um, with Profofol and COVID-19 patients. So I just don't know if you guys wanna to touch on that. Metta, you wanna go ahead? Okay. 
we have been um, surprised at uh, the enormous doses of propofol that are required by our COVID patients on mechanical ventilation. Um, we are actually we were very lucky because the majority of them were fed enterally. And um, we have a solution which is high protein and uh, low fat. So by doing that, the propofol was not too much a trouble. I'm just exploring the data just now. But in those pa few patients where we needed parental nutrition, we of course used those containing omega-3s. So no problem. And that is, of course, then a worry. And you have to monitor your triglycerides. And what you can do then is to shift the propofol solution from a pure LCT solution to an MCT containing. And then you see, observe immediately. I share with you, Bob, the I presented good experience with the MCT blends. And it's a yeah. good way to handle the overload of LCT you have with propofol. That'd be great. I hope we can get that in the U.S. sometime soon, Meta, because uh, we have the same problem with overuse of propofol and lipids. It, it's becoming uh, almost a crisis level, especially with these patients getting high dose to first sedation during their COVID-19 situation. Any thoughts on it, Mauricio? Any? No, I, I just just to add something about protocol, which is uh, uh, a real issue because uh, besides its its content on in uh, omega six fatty acids, uh, it represents a significant source of calories, and 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 uh, in in these patients, you may uh, risk overfeeding, which is uh, probably something we want to avoid in critically ill patients. We're talking about uh, very low. Uh, um, intake of, of calories and and other substrates, particularly in the first uh, in the first phases of uh, a critical illness, and so this should never be overlooked uh, because a lot of calories are are, are uh, administered in the form of propofol in those patients requiring high doses of propofol. So this should be included in the in the total uh, calorie count in these patients in order right. to avoid the the risk of feeding. It represents four to five hundred calories a day. Easy. Actually, it's a lot. Yeah. Four to five hundred calories. Yeah. Yeah. And this reduces the space for proteins. So one has to really integrate those in the total calorie count. I fully agree with you, right. Maurizio. Thank you for pointing that Martin, one. Yeah, come to add there. Yeah, just uh, one quick, small little thing is like the the biggest thing is to add it to your daily uh, calories, but you know. One of the things that we saw when uh, Puerto Rico got hit with the hurricane, uh, they're a huge producer for propofol for us, and we actually had a propofol shortage. And, you know, exploring other options for sedation using ketamine, Presidex, you know, you don't really want to go with benzos anymore because it's been shown to in a heightened delirium, but, you know, ketamine and Presidex are really good medications. So if you do find yourself overfeeding somebody and they're on propofol, you can always reduce the propofol concentration and just go offhand with a different uh, sedative. So there, there's yeah, tricks and trades. Yeah, we've yeah, had very good luck with Presidex here and tried to minimize our use of propofol with Presidex. Okay, great. Uh, Tracy, any other questions? I think we got a couple of minutes left. 
Yeah, I have a few more. There's actually a question related to propofol and COVID-19 again. Um, and have you altered your triglyceride levels or thresholds to stop or change your therapy with the COVID-19 patients? We have not. Has anybody changed their... Matthew, you changed yours? No, we have not. No, for sure not. I mean, these levels have been set by the American Heart Association and other associations. We should be cautious if they rise. So we really do need to monitor. And Maurizio, you said we should check for our triglycerides when we start patients on PN, but it's true for propofol as well. So when we start sedation, we should make a basal level of triglycerides and then follow up at, at least once a week. I would recommend twice weekly to see how it works. And uh, the amounts of lipids we have in the parental nutrition are not the problem. The problem is the lipids for propofol. And uh, we have published papers showing that it's really proportionate to the propofol dose. So this must be monitored clearly. Yeah, I think it's important, especially this the question was monitoring the COVID-19 patient. And I think that's especially because remember a subset of those COVID-19 ICU patients will have hypertriglyceridemia associated with that rapid onset. It seems to be the ones who come in in you know respiratory distress and rapidly get intubated, rapidly move to the ICU, and either on a prone positioning and ECMO, those seem to be the ones we see hypertriglyceridemia in. And uh, I think we got to really be careful with that population. Hundred percent. And the uh, other added, uh, I guess, clinical uh, picture to worry about is you know some of these COVID nineteen patients come in with viral pancreatitis, and if you're not checking levels and you end up having really high triglycerides, you're going to be kind of rearing up that flame in the retroperitoneum and uh, worsening their pancreatitis. So it's super important that we we kind of take everything into context. Yeah, okay. absolutely right. Any, any other thoughts, right. uh, Tracy? Question? A question for Lorenzo on uh, the United States data for the um, omega-3 PN hospitalized patients, and maybe Mauricio too, um, just uh, kind of timing on when to expect that. Apparently some centers here in the U.S. want U.S. data. Well, as I said, it was uh, submitted, so it depends on the, on the timelines of the, of the journal. Uh, so it does not depend on us anymore. We, we are expecting it in uh, a couple of months to be published. Well, Lorenzo, it was JPEN, right? I know you don't want to spoil the, spoil the press, the release, but was the data pretty good and consistent with the European data and Chinese data? They are. Yes, they are. Great. Good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I know that for us, uh, We've got a bunch of medical students collecting data now. And we found it costs us about $4 per day that change over from soy-based. And it really is insignificant increase in total cost. Remember, an ICU bed in the United States costs about $3,000 a day. And so that's mm -hmm. insignificant when you're saving ICU days. There's multiple papers, as you know, and showed us the multiple papers that get people out of the ICU faster less sepsis days, less ICU days, less total hospital days, more than pays for itself in that setting. Yeah, that's actually the point. Yeah. The enhanced recovery permits to, to avoid other costs, uh, which are not PN related, which uh, largely offset uh, the excess and cost of the omega-3s. This is what we have seen uh, almost all settings. Great. Okay. Late breaking news. Okay. 
Thank you, Lorenzo. <laughs> there is a question about um, enteral um, omega-3 supplements. And if your patients are on enteral or PO post-surgical, would you recommend them taking omega-3 supplements? I know there was um, Meta discussed some patients being enterally fed, so I wanted to address that as well. Well, the modern uh, enteral nutrition solutions include blends of the different fatty acids and uh, they should do but um actually which in which patients would i give additional omega-3s it would be those coming in with hypertriglyceridemia because omega-3 is the treatment of hypertriglyceridemia so if a patient was coming in with that on enteral nutrition it has happened that i've been uh, delivering additional omega-3s yes but it's not the rule and uh, it's especially in the patients one parental. Yeah, I've found uh, that the intro products, they're getting full dose intro products. The problem I find is that many times these really sick people will give only 20, 30 cc's a day and then we're not getting adequate. So then we have to discuss supplemental parental and of course, uh, omega-3s. Uh, intravenous yes. part of that. But in general, they're getting Absolutely. full intro feeding with a fish oil containing formula. We don't add anything extra. I Any think that in the that? future, companies should develop a new product for enteral nutrition with a better uh, ratio between omega 6 and omega 3. In, uh, in most, but not in all, are the uh, available enteral formulas. Uh, the, uh, the ratio is still quite high, and it should be uh, it should be a little bit reduced uh, uh, either uh, by reducing omega six or, or increasing omega three fatty acids. But I think this is uh, the, the trend which will be followed in the next year. I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Fish for all. Okay. There is one more question that I can take. It's on um, stability data um, for home patients. Someone asked a question about that. It will be forthcoming. Um, the current data that is available for um, soybean-based oils is a visual test, and we're actually um, looking at some PFAT5 data. So stay tuned and definitely reach out to our medical affairs um, if you had any questions or need any other information. Um, but um, our exceptional panel. Did you guys have anything else to add today? Now, Teresa, I did want to say you're going to send the references, a reference list to everybody available for this, because I think the references are key. And that tells a story. If somebody has questions, you can look at those references, well-respected university settings published by that are well-respected by, you know, groups showing good data. So I think that those references are going to be key. Yes, we will be sending everyone that attended or signed up um, a full list of the references. I know I learned a lot today, so we have such a great group of panels. Um, so I thank you all for joining us. Smoff Lipid Lipid Injectable Emulsion for Intravenous Use. Brief Summary of Prescribing Information. This brief summary does not include all the information needed to use Smoff Lipid safely and effectively. Please see full prescribing information, including boxed warning for SMOF lipid, lipid injectable emulsion, for intravenous use at www.smoflipid.com. Warning, death in preterm infants. 
deaths in preterm infants after infusion of intravenous lipid emulsions have been reported in the medical literature. Autopsy findings included intravascular fat accumulation in the lungs. Preterm infants and low birth weight infants have poor clearance of intravenous lipid emulsion and increased free fatty acid plasma levels following lipid emulsion infusion. Indications and usage. Smoflipid is indicated in adults as a source of calories and essential fatty acids for parenteral nutrition when oral or enteral nutrition is not possible, insufficient, or contraindicated. Limitations of use. The omega-6, omega-3 fatty acid ratio and medium-chain triglycerides in smoflipid have not been shown to improve clinical outcomes compared to other intravenous lipid emulsions. Dosage and administration. The recommended daily dosage in adults is 1 to 2 grams per kilogram per day and should not exceed 2.5 grams per kilogram per day. Smoflipid 1,000 milliliters is supplied as a pharmacy bulk package for admixing only and is not for direct infusion. Prior to administration, transfer to a separate parental nutrition container. Contraindications. Known hypersensitivity to fish, egg, soybean, or peanut protein, or to any of the active ingredients or excipients. Severe hyperlipidemia or severe disorders of lipid metabolism with serum triglycerides of greater than 1,000 milligrams per deciliter. Warnings and precautions. Death in preterm infants. See black box warning. Hypersensitivity reactions. Smoflipid contains soybean oil, fish oil, and egg phospholipids, which may cause hypersensitivity reactions. Cross-reactions have been observed between soybean and peanut oil. Signs or symptoms of a hypersensitivity reaction may include tachypnea, dyspnea, hypoxia, bronchospasm, tachycardia, hypotension, cyanosis, vomiting, nausea, headache, sweating, dizziness, altered mentation, flushing, rash, uticaria, arrhythmia, pyrexia, or chills. If a hypersensitivity reaction occurs, stop infusion of smoflipid immediately and undertake appropriate treatment and supportive measures. Risk of catheter-related infections. Lipid emulsions such as smoflipid can support microbial growth and is an independent risk factor for the development of catheter-related bloodstream infections. The risk of infection is increased in patients with malnutrition-associated immunosuppression, long-term use and poor maintenance of intravenous catheters or immunosuppressive effects of other concomitant conditions or drugs. Fat overload syndrome. This is a rare condition that has been reported with intravenous lipid emulsions. A reduced or limited ability to metabolize lipids accompanied by prolonged plasma clearance may result in a syndrome characterized by a sudden deterioration in the patient's condition, including fever, anemia, leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, coagulation disorders, hyperlipidemia, fatty liver infiltration, hepatomegaly, deteriorating liver function, and central nervous system manifestations, for example, coma. Refeeding syndrome. Reintroducing calories and protein to severely undernourished patients with parenteral nutrition may result in the refeeding syndrome characterized by the intracellular shift of potassium, phosphorus, and magnesium as the patient becomes anabolic. Thiamine deficiency and fluid retention may also develop. Aluminum toxicity. Smoflipid contains no more than 25 micrograms per liter of aluminum. 
during prolonged parenteral nutrition administration in patients with renal impairment, the aluminum levels in the patient may reach toxic levels. Preterm infants are at greater risk because their kidneys are immature and they require large amounts of calcium and phosphate solutions which contain aluminum. Patients with renal impairment, including preterm infants, who receive parenteral intakes of aluminum at greater than four to five micrograms per kilogram per day can accumulate aluminum to levels associated with central nervous system and bone toxicity. Tissue loading may occur at even lower rates of administration of parenteral nutrition products. Risk of parenteral nutrition associated liver disease. Parental nutrition-associated liver disease has been reported in patients who receive parental nutrition for extended periods of time, especially preterm infants, and can present as cholestasis or steatohepatitis. The exact etiology is unknown and is likely multifactorial. Intravenously administered phytosterols, plant sterols, contained in plant-derived lipid formulations have been associated with development of parental nutrition-associated liver disease although a causal relationship has not been established. If SMOF lipid-treated patients develop liver test abnormalities, consider discontinuation or dose reduction. Hypertriglyceridemia. Impaired lipid metabolism with hypertriglyceridemia may occur in conditions such as inherited lipid disorders, obesity, diabetes mellitus, and metabolic syndrome. Monitoring and laboratory tests. Routinely monitor serum triglycerides, fluid and electrolyte status, blood glucose, liver and kidney function, blood count including platelets and coagulation parameters throughout treatment. Monitoring patients for signs and symptoms of essential fatty acid deficiency is recommended. Interference with laboratory tests. Content of vitamin K may counteract anticoagulant activity. The lipids contained in the emulsion may interfere with some laboratory blood tests for example, hemoglobin, lactate, dehydrogenase, bilirubin, and oxygen saturation if blood is sampled before lipids have cleared from the bloodstream. Adverse reactions. Most common adverse drug reaction greater than 1% of patients who received SMOF lipid from clinical trials were nausea, vomiting, hyperglycemia, flagellants, pyrexia, abdominal pain, increased blood triglycerides, hypertension, sepsis, dyspepsia, urinary tract infection, anemia, and device-related infection. Less common adverse reactions in less than or equal to 1% of patients who received SMOF lipid were dyspnea, leukocytosis, diarrhea, pneumonia, cholestasis, dysgesia, increased blood alkaline phosphatase, increased gamma glutamine transferase, increased C-reactive protein, tachycardia, liver function test abnormalities, headache, pruritus, dizziness, rash, and thrombophlebitis. The following adverse reactions have been identified during post-approval use of smoflipid in countries where it is registered. Infections and infestations, infection, respiratory, thoracic, and mediastinal disorders, dyspnea. To report suspected adverse reactions, contact Fresenius Cabby USA LLC at 1-800-551-7176, option 5 or FDA at 1-800-FDA-1088, or www.fda.gov forward slash medwatch. Drug interactions. Coumarin and Coumarin derivatives, including warfarin. Anticoagulant activity may be counteracted. Monitor laboratory parameters. 
use in specific populations. Pregnancy and lactation. There are no available data on risks associated with smoflipid when used in pregnant or lactating women. Pediatric use. The safety and effectiveness of smoflipid have not been established in pediatric patients. Hepatic impairment. Parenteral nutrition should be used with caution in patients with hepatic impairment. Hepatobiliary disorders are known to develop in some patients without pre-existing liver disease who receive parenteral nutrition, including cholestasis, hepatic steatosis, fibrosis, and cirrhosis. Parenteral nutrition associated liver disease, possibly leading to hepatic failure. Overdosage. In the event of an overdose, fat overload syndrome may occur. Stop the smoflipid infusion until triglyceride levels have normalized. The effects are usually reversible by stopping the lipid infusion. If medically appropriate, further intervention may be indicated. Lipids are not dialyzable from serum. Aspen 20 Central Stage Panel Q&A. USA Resources. www.fkprograms.com www.fresenius.cabinutrition.com Global Resources www.nutritionevents.com Email nutrition.us at fresenius-cabi.com